So hello and welcome to the Resilience Research Group's monthly seminar series. Uh, each month we will be joined by uh, researchers, organisations or the public to discuss one topic related to resilience. Uh, and in this podcast, we will be discussing community resilience. So I have here today with me uh, Sherry Hamby. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Oh, my name is Sherry Hamby and I'm a the director of the LifePass Research Center in Tennessee in the United States, and I'm also a research professor at University of the South and the founder and co-chair of ResilienceCon. Thank you very much. That all sounds really impressive. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. So um, let's start today off simply then. As someone who is uh, looks at resilience at an individual level, I don't really know what community resilience is. So could you could you tell me a bit more about that? Sure. Well, community resilience gets used in a couple of different ways. So uh, if you asked, if we were talking to a, a, you know, a bunch of mayors, for example, when they think of community resilience, I think that most municipalities tend to think of it in terms of uh, resistance to community-wide threats. So, for example, being prepared for natural disasters like tornadoes or floods or things like that. Uh, you know, and so there is that element of it of like what kinds of things can a community bounce back from. But I also think that it's helpful to think of it in terms of like the broader social ecology and thinking of community as just one level of that. And so from that point of view, I mean, I think sometimes the disaster preparedness gets substituted for community resilience a lot. And that doesn't always necessarily do a good job of thinking about how it fits into our, our broader social ecology and how community resilience, you know, intersects with family resilience and individual resilience and societal level resilience. And, you know, it's also just one piece of the resilience puzzle and community level factors uh, for example, you know, like access to good health care or good social safety net, you know, those kinds of things don't just make communities healthier and more resilient. They help families and individuals, too. Thank you. And you mentioned the words uh, social ecology. So is that about, um, as you said, about, about health care and social care, or is that more about uh, individual level support or both? Well, the social ecology, I mean, as I'm sure you are well aware, but just for listeners who might not be familiar with it, is it's a term that that we that psychology and social sciences borrowed from biology. And so, you know, if in an ecological model, so if you think of like a pond, for example, you know, there's all these different elements that have to be in place for the pond to be successful. So there needs to be you know, good mix of plants and some, you know, like lower, uh, well, some simpler organisms like algae, as well as some more complicated flowering plants. There needs to be bugs, there, you know, needs to be frogs. And so if you, you care, for example, about the health of a frog population, you can't just focus on the frogs. You have to make sure that, that they have enough to eat, that they have a good habitat, that they don't have too many predators, uh, you know, and so that 
kind of ecological systems approach was something that psychology incorporated in, and calls the social ecology. And so classically, when you think about the social ecology, you do think about uh, individuals, uh, families, you know, also your peers, your friends, your workplace colleagues, you know, your classmates, if you're in school, uh, you know, and then, you know, kind of uh, going to higher and higher levels of organization to think about your your town or your community or your neighborhood and then beyond that your um, you know your country or even your region of the world that you live in and how you know elements of all of those things affect you and uh, you know, if you look back at the individual level, if you under, want to understand the, the health and well-being of an individual, then you have to understand that full context. Um, classically, the social ecology really only talks about other humans and systems that humans create, like healthcare or law enforcement or what have you. But I actually think that it's really helpful to think about the built environment when you think about the, uh, you know, more social or psychological ecological model too, because things like accesses to green spaces or accessibility of buildings or things like that, you know, those all really contribute to the health and well-being of people as well. Mm -hmm. And out of those a very wide range of topics, which ones do you and your lab focus on? Well, we primarily focus on community resilience in that social ecological sense. I'm not really a disaster preparedness person. And so I'm interested in under, identifying what the, the key strengths are at different levels of the social ecology that do the most to promote the thriving, uh, you know, overcoming adversity for most people. Uh, so I'm very interested in trying to identify or bring into the picture because so much resilience research still looks primarily at individual level factors. Uh, I think I've seen a couple of reviews in the last few years where, you know, it's like 75, 80% of, of the variable study are individual level and then most of the rest are family and hardly ever any looking at more like neighborhood or community level factors. And so I'm interested in trying to bring those broader level factors into the conversation because I, I do think they have a huge impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. Fantastic, thank you. So just to um, sort of summarize or bring this into what we've learned about resilience so far in our, our previous podcast, which as you say, have been mainly individual level. What would you say the relationship is between individual and community resilience? Well, uh, we had a, a conference a few years ago and um, and what that led to a series of papers. And you know, then the classic social ecological model, the one that Bronfenbrenner is probably uh, you know most famous for. Yuri uh, Bronfenbrenner coming up with this um, picture, you'll see it as a group of nested circles. I mean, probably a lot of people watching this podcast have seen that. So like the individual is the little circle in the middle and then family is a little bigger and then your peers and then your neighborhood and then your society is like the biggest circle. 
And Winnie Chan and, uh, and several of her colleagues wrote a paper that has really changed the way I think about this a lot because they said that that image, I mean, obviously it's, you know, just meant to, as an illustration, it's not a literal uh, picture of, a, of any ecology, but that nonetheless, it, it implies that, that that social and community stuff is like further away from the individual than the family is. And they really pushed back on that idea and said that, you know, you, no behavior occurs in the absence of culture. And so it's really wrong to think that the cultural factors are like somehow further away from individuals and that that really common image, unfortunately, really gives a mistaken impression of that. Um, you know, I'm also like a really big fan of some of the master narrative work that's done by de uh, developmental psychologists like Kate McLean. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that they talk about is that, you know, every, every cultural group, I mean, whether you're, you know, talking about, a, you know, a, a small, a mini culture, like a school campus, or if you're talking about, you know, the whole country, that they all have their sort of master narratives of what kinds of things we care about, you know, what are the right ways to behave, you know, how people should treat each other, like all these different things that are guiding all of our behaviors. And we don't all have to agree with those behaviors, but we have to reckon with them in some way. So we all have a personal narrative and it can, it can align with an alternative narrative to what we think of as the master narrative, but we can't really ever ignore the master narrative, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, so for example, I live in the, the Bible belt of what's usually called the Bible belt of the United States. And, you know, it is a very religious area. I'm not a particularly religious person myself. And, uh, you know, so I don't identify with that element of the master narrative of this culture, but I do have to find ways of, of reckoning with it, of interacting with it, of, you know, making, uh, you know, so like taking care in my work that I don't say anything dismissive about people's religious beliefs or, uh, or try to push a more secular agenda onto people because that will just, you know, get their hackles up as they, you know, would say around here and, uh, you know, and that they won't want to hear my message because, you know, and so there are, are ways that you reckon with those kinds of master narratives and like all the choices that you're making. And I think that that was a really good point that um, that Chan and her colleagues were making in this article. And it has really made me rethink uh, my approach to the social ecology. Mm, and that it sort of uh, leads me to a really interesting question there, which is you've talked quite a bit there about how community impacts an individual um, and not necessarily in a good way, could be something that um, causes more stresses on a person. Um, in terms of resilience, so a, a resilient community would be one that, can, that the community can survive any concerns that come up, is that right? Well, I, uh like uh, a lot of people like, you know, uh, Rudder or Mastin or Chiquetti or Unger, uh, you know, most, uh, I think it's, there's a 
slowly moving towards a consensus that's kind of shifting away from our 70s and 80s conceptualization of resilience where uh, in some of the early work really talked about it as a more of like a personality trait so like really something that was like centered in the individual uh, i see resilience as a process and so it's the process of harnessing you know, all of your assets and resources and you can draw from any part of the social ecology when you do that and using those assets and resources and over to overcome your trauma dosage so from the point of view of uh, a community, you know, that would be, if you think of the community as the unit, then that would be the same challenge for them. Mm -hmm. um, so if you take the example of disaster preparedness, so they might, you know, harness in the United States, there's uh, an organization uh, called uh, FEMA, it's a federal emergency management agency. And so if you, if a community experiences a hurricane or something like that, then they could tap into those federal resources. They can, you know, get help from the Red Cross. So they can, they're probably more likely to turn first to other kind of system level players in terms of accessing resources. Uh, but then they do also rely on, you know, like, uh, you know, more community-based or individual-based resources. So churches, you know, organizing donations, um, you know, individuals donating to recovery. I mean, sometimes, you know, there's almost always in the news, you know, stories of, you know, pretty remarkable individual heroism of people who, you know, rescued somebody whose, you know, car was going to be swept away or something like that. And, you know, and so those are all, resources that they can that they access and try to put together too, uh, you know, and then of course, you know, there's things that are not in the moment. And I think that that's really important when you think about building your resilience portfolios, uh, which is a model that my team and I use. And so if you really want to be prepared for a hurricane, you know, it's not good just to wait till the rain starts to fall, you know, and so you have to do other kinds of things too. I mean, if you're on low lying land, you might need to, you know, build up levees or you might need to, uh, you know, have good better water control systems so that you can divert some of the waters. You might change building codes. Uh, you know, that has turning out to be like a, you know, a really important area to invest as we experience more extreme weather because, you know, there's been a huge, huge difference in ones that are built to more modern building code standards. And so those are all sort of long-term investment in resources that help people to withstand uh, you know, unwanted, but also probably, you know, over the long course, I mean, in any one summer or hurricane season, you might get lucky and, you know, and so it can be easy not to make those investments, but it really pays off in the long run, because if you are in a, in a place that's vulnerable to hurricanes, sooner or later, your town is probably going to get hit by one. Uh, and I actually think that kind of mindset would, is a good way of thinking about it for individuals too, is that we need to be thinking about how we can invest long-term in having assets and resources we need, because we need to get better at 
realizing that we're probably not going to be able to avoid you know any kind of traumatic experience over our entire lifespan that's just really rare and that we should be more oriented towards helping people invest in resources that they'll be able to tap into when they need them yeah that's one of my favorite definitions of resilience as well and what i like to use is, is for individuals it's uh, resilience is where someone not only has the assets and resources to deal with it, but also can use them effectively. So it's the, the combination of the two that causes people to be resilient to new things. So sort of taking that definition, as you say, a, a resilient community being one which has the assets and resources to deal with, with any future trauma that may arise, would you say that a resilient community always results in resilient individuals? Oh, well, no, I mean, there's, you know, unfortunately, there's not that one to one relationship. Um, I mean, and mostly because even the best run community in the world is only going to be able to insulate its citizens from so much trauma. And there's still going to be like really wide individual variation in what people's lifetime trauma dosages are. Uh, so, uh, you know, for example, using the one of uh, my questionnaires, the juvenile victimization questionnaire, which is the basis of the uh, National Survey of Children's Exposure to Violence in the United States, it's been used in large-scale surveys in a number of countries now, and including in the United Kingdom. Um, NSPCC did a large study there using it. And if you use that kind of broad measure of lifetime trauma dosage, it's broader than the Adverse Childhood Experiences questionnaire because it includes uh, peer victimization and community victimization. Uh, and uh, witnessing violence is nuts other than just uh, exposure to domestic violence, which is in most of the ACEs questionnaires. Uh, and that really shows that even by late adolescence, that about 70 to 80 percent of people have been exposed to some kind of victimization. Um, in our work, if you add in, you know, other types of trauma, like bereavement or you know something like things like that you, know, you get up into the high 90s and uh, so you know I think we have to realize that I mean one of the things that I don't think that a lot of resilience work does a very good job is that most people's trauma dosage is not zero and it's not going to be zero so it's not just a matter of you know there was one hurricane or one you know mugging or one sexual assault and then you know before that nothing bad happened and then after that all you have to do is recover because nothing bad is ever going to happen again you know there's that kind of implicit assumption and a fair amount of resilience-based research that they're only focusing on like one bad thing and that you know thinking about it in terms of a lifespan dosage of trauma and I think that that is one of the reasons that there's not uh, you know a good understanding of like what the key assets and resources are that we need uh, but anyway in any community there's going to be people who are you know, relatively insulated for um, mostly because of their assets and resources and maybe a little bit from just pure luck. And then there's going to be people who are you know, really highly traumatized and highly victimized and have very, very high doses of trauma. And uh, so even if the community itself is a uh, you know, really resilient community who does a 
that does a great job of harnessing assets and resources, that that is not going to translate into terrific functioning for every single member of that community because of those individual variations. And you mentioned earlier that a community can be any size of group, so it's not necessarily at a, a government level, it can be, you know, family, it can be social groups and such like as well. So presumably, depending on how resilient each of those is, would have an impact on how well people can access the, the larger um, assets as well. Yes, exactly. I think that's a really important point. And it is one of the things that we really, I mean, not just us, but that, you know, people really struggle with when they try to do research on communities. Because when you say community, like, what do you mean by that, you know, so am I, is my community the, 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 the my university campus, or is it the small town that I live in, which really is extremely dominated by the university campus, but there are, you know, some people in the town that are not attached to the university, or is it the broader county that the campus sits in? The, the county that I live in is quite different from the from the either the campus or the town because it's much more conservative and it has, you know, and it has a lower income. And then there are a number of resources that are easy for people. Well, I mean, just to take psychotherapy, for example, you know, the students have uh, pretty good access to psychotherapy here through the student counseling center, through the, well, they call it the wellness center. Um, and, you know, there's pretty, you know, I think all of the people who work there are good providers and, you know, they, there's not really a cost burden to them. It's included in their tuition, but everybody else in this community doesn't have that same access to psychotherapy. There are not that many providers in the area. Um, you know, some of them I would not recommend somebody goes to. And, and of course, uh, because we don't have universal health care here, it can be prohibitively expensive for people. So even somebody who lives, you know, a quarter mile away, you know, from one of those dorms might be in some senses in a very different community from the students on that campus. And, you know, our questionnaires really just don't do a very good job of capturing those kinds of subtleties and differences at all. You said that, you know, you, you've made a really interesting point there about how um, there can be several different communities within what we consider one community. So you, for example, said the difference there between people in your university and in the university town might have very different communities with very different levels of resilience. So do you think um, it could also be the interaction between those kind of communities that can impact their resilience? Well, I do think that, that, you know, because, you know, again, just sticking to healthcare is like an easy example. Uh, we There is a small hospital here in this town. It's really kept going mostly from university subsidies. I doubt that it... Um, you know, because again, you know, since we don't have universal health care, like it, you know, it changes the, the cost benefit analyses of those kinds of things. But it also, I mean, they can't do, I mean, basically, if you have any really serious health problem, you're going to have to go to either Nashville or Chattanooga, which are like 
one to two hours away, depending on, you know, what hospital you go to. So, and that is true, just as true for the students as it is for like anybody else living in that town. And so, you know, even with healthcare, there are going to be, you know, points of commonality in which, you know, many of us, are, you know, like a few years ago, my husband had some, uh, you know, problems with a detached retina and we had to go to Nashville for all of his health care and then eventually uh, even to uh, Birmingham, which is about two and a half hours away. So, uh, you know, so that that did have an effect on us, even though we in other ways are you know relatively privileged and benefit from a lot of the things that the campus brings. But we still, you know, interact with some of the the facts that are true that this is just a very rural area and you just don't find a lot of you know, we just don't have the population to support a lot of specialists. So like that would be like a good example of like those kinds of eye specialists. They just wouldn't have enough work in a, in a community of this size. And that's, um, again, quite a um, sort of a physical, tangible asset that a community can have. And from what you were saying earlier, it's not just about the physical, it's also about um, what communities people feel they belong to and what ones they, they turn to to access as well. So there could be sort of cultural or, or socioeconomic differences as well in how people's community resilience impacts the community. Sure. So, you know, I mean, like an example of that would be, uh, you know, vaccine resistance, which uh, you know, varies quite a lot, you know, like even within this single county, uh, you know, between different subgroups of the county. So the campus has a vaccine mandate. So, you know, almost everybody who is affiliated with the campus in some way is vaccinated, uh, but the surrounding county doesn't. And as I, I said, they're, you know, much more conservative. And so I think a lot of more of them have been affected by the misinformation that's common in the United States around, uh, well, and elsewhere too, uh, you know, around vaccines. And so they actually have a below average vaccine rate compared to the rest of the United States, uh, you know, but those kinds of things do, uh, you know, they, so they, they interact and they intersect. And so it does make a difference in terms of, uh, you know, that's not really a problem of access. In fact, if anything, uh, access to vaccines is probably easier here than it is in more populated areas because you can go to any of the pharmacies as well as the local health department. And because we're a fairly rural place, you know, you know there's never a line of, you know, more than one or two people at the outside, you know, to, you know, to get service at any of those things. And so, um, you know, the acts, the physical access is quite good, but there are still uh, wide variations in subgroups in the community. So um, one thing that has been mentioned by some people in relation to community resilience is predictability. Could you talk a bit about how predictability might be related to resilience? Sure. I'm. Well, in the resilience portfolio model, there are three major domains. There's uh, interpersonal, which is really sort of this social ecological stuff that we've been talking about up until now. There's meaning making, which I do think is really incredibly important and an underappreciated aspect of it. So having like a strong 
sense of purpose, you know, at the community level, meaning making is really all about those master narratives and, you know, and how people establish their, their values in, in a community. Um, and then the, the third domain are regulatory strengths. And historically, that's where I, what I think a lot of people, when they say resilience, that what they really mean are what I would call regulatory strengths. So, you know, um, in the resilience world, I think a lot of what people mean resilience could just as well translate to emotional toughness. I don't think that emotional toughness or, you know, hardiness is necessarily, I mean, I think it is a good strength, but I also think it's not like a, a be-all and end-all solution to a lot of problems. And so, for example, uh, you know, I would consider myself somebody who is pretty emotionally tough or, you know, has grit or persistence or, you know, whatever, you know, kind of constellation of words you might use in that category. Uh, and that does work for me a lot of times, but, you know, but sometimes if you really want to overcome a traumatic experience you've had, you know, what you need to do is be vulnerable and you need to, you know, be able to, uh, you know, express your the difficulties that you're having with that and you need to be able to ask for help. So you know, trying to identify like a really tight set of personality characteristics. I mean, that's always going to lead you astray because there's not any going to be one size fits all set of characteristics or resources that are going to help in every single situation, uh, which is, you know, why we use this sort of portfolio model, that it's good to have different sets of tools for different kinds of problems. So that whenever a problem comes up, that hopefully you'll have like three or four different assets and resources you can bring to bear on coping with it. And so I would put uh, predictability in terms of, you know, as a, if you're talking about that in terms of a trait, you know, in that regulatory domain and as like one of the, the toolkits. And so, you know, maintaining a, you know, a relatively stable routine, or if you're a young person having parents or caregivers who can help you maintain a stable routine, you know, those kinds of things are really important. And, uh, you know, oftentimes they are the key to helping people kind of get back on track after a traumatic experience. Uh, although, again, you don't want to take anything too far. So, uh, for example, if you take bereavement in the United States, and I think in a lot of, uh, you know, probably in the UK and similar cultures, uh, a lot of mainstream culture, I don't think actually handles grief very well, and that we don't really make space for that you know, that, that vulnerable time where you might need help and you might need, you know, just to step away from your usual duties and responsibilities. Um, you know, the United States, I mean, people are notorious for, you know, even if you, you know, lose a spouse or a parent or some really key figure in your life. And then like three or four days, people are like, well, can you still get that report done on Friday? You know, and, uh, you know, that they're, they don't do a very good job of, you know, those you know, more, uh, gentle kinds of strengths, I guess. I'm struggling to find like the right word for them. Uh, but, you know, but eventually, you know, you do need to get back to your, your daily life and that the difference between people who have complicated bereavement reactions and people who successfully mourn, you know, the loss of a loved one, but then still do manage to overcome that loss, uh, you know, predictability is one of the things that happens is that they 
they get back into their routine, they become more stable, uh, you know, their own behavior becomes more consistent and reliable. I mean, they, you know, lots of different ways you could use that term predictability. Um, you know, if I can, I would also say if you're talking about predictability from the statistical sense, you know, that one of the challenges and one of the real problems of using these resilience questionnaires that just often have kind of a touch on a lot of different things. So they'll have, you know, stable behavior, impulse control, emotion regulation. Sometimes they might even throw in a few questions about social support or something that might, you know, I would put in a different domain. Uh, but they kind of, it, they tend to just throw them all in there together. And I, one of the challenges that's been in the resilience literature is that we don't really know like which strengths are the, the most important. Um, and our work what I've been surprised to see is that meaning making has come out hands down as like the single most important set of strengths. It, um, although things like emotion regulation and social support are certainly important too, uh, but it has been much harder to find uh, strengths in these other domains that account for as much variance. And I also think that, you know, to go back to community strengths and, and the differences among communities. You know, I live in the Southern Appalachian region of the United States. And, you know, I think it's one of many regions where there are a lot of underappreciated strengths that have never really been tapped into in the literature. There are many, you know, marginalized and oppressed communities that you could say the same about. I've also done some work in um, Indian country with uh, indigenous uh, tribes here. And, you know, and there are many strengths in those communities that you don't ever see represented in the literature. And so some people complain that we haven't been able to figure out like what set of characteristics, you know, really promotes thriving after trauma. But, you know, in our data, we we do, we are routinely able to explain, you know, more than 50% of the variance and uh, things like subjective well-being. And I think it's because we use a broader portfolio of strengths in our measures and try to capture this, this range of, of assets and resources that people can help. And so if you're trying to predict who is going to be uh, resilient or who is going to be able to thrive despite their dosage of trauma, you know, I think that we just haven't done a very good job of sort of systematically uh, weeding out ones that seem less promising strengths and really identifying, you know, testing a, a wide range of strengths and making head-to-head -head comparisons against each other. Right. Do you think that could be one of the sort of limitations of the community resilience literature that, you know, it's really easy to look at stuff like infrastructure when deciding if a community is, is resilient, but actually, you know, going in and, and understanding the community and what their specific strengths and weaknesses are is it's just so much harder to quantify. I definitely think that that is an even probably, I think you're right. I think it's probably an even bigger limitation in the community resilience literature. Um, you know, I, I mean, it is harder to quantify, I guess, in that it doesn't come with a ready-made quantification. Like you can't just get their, you know, the city budget and find out how much they spent on, uh, you know, emergency services or something like that in a dollar and cents kind of, uh, or count the, the number of, 
you know, trained paramedics they have in the community or something like that. But I, you know, I do think that there are well-established ways of quantifying these more psychological concepts and, and that we really do need to start thinking about how to do that you know, at this community level. So, you know, back to that master narrative idea, uh, you know, you know, not just, not just asking me specifically, like how religious I am, and then asking you and then asking somebody else, but, you know, but to try to get our, you know, impressions and, and try to find out like what elements of spirituality or religion are central to this community and, and trying to shift that that focus a little bit so that we could find ways of tapping into that. And, you know, and there would be ways of making use of things like, um, like for that one, for example, like you could count the number of churches. I think there's been um, not so much in the resilience literature, but certainly in the broader community psychology literature, there have been measures used like the, uh, the number of community organizations, you know, the number of scout troops and what have you, and that those different kinds of things can give you good community level indicators of, of you know, where a community is in terms of uh, sense of belonging and uh, emotional connectedness and, you know, social connectedness and things like that. Thank you. And uh, more, more generally than about the community resilience literature, so what challenges do you think that researchers face when trying to explore community resilience? I think that one of the biggest challenges that this field faces is that we have not done a good job of more explicitly integrating social justice concerns into community resilience and, you know, integrating concepts of, you know, like health equity and racial equity and gender equity and, and things like that. And that, you know, I think this is one of the reason why some people actually push back on this concept of resilience because they feel like that's the choice you can either have social justice or you can, you know, tell everybody that they have to be resilient. And I, I think especially at the community level that you really see at, at every level, but, you know, it, perhaps it's most easy to see at the community level that you really have to integrate those if you want to have true community resilience. So, you know, it's not going to matter how many fire trucks you have if you if you're not working on making sure that everybody has equal and access to emergency services, and that you know that no matter what their you know their race or their gender or their age that they're going to be or their um, you know disability status or whatever the case may be that they're going to have equal access to those services and that they're going to be all well treated when they try to access those services and uh, you know and that's not the case in a great many places uh, in the United States and and elsewhere and uh, you know I, I think that there needs to be a, a greater focus on on that. Fantastic, thank you. And we are we are almost at our time now, so I just wanted to ask one final question, which is: Is there anything we haven't covered that you think it's really important for the public to know about community resilience? 
you know, I guess I would just reiterate, you know, the, the social justice element. Yeah, I think what I say to people about that we all, that we have to have both, you know, and so I get to go back to one of the points I made earlier, uh, bad things happen, you know, and there's, and no society like anywhere in the, on the earth has figured out how to stop bad things from happening. Uh, you know, sometimes these bad things might be natural disasters. Uh, far more often, these bad things are interpersonal things that we are doing to each other. Um, and so, it is good to push for social justice and you can see different burdens of trauma, you know, between the more socially just and the least socially just countries on earth. There are, you know, huge, huge differences between, um, you know, like Finland and North Korea or something like that, you know, obviously. Uh, but, but even in, in Finland, you know, you're going, people need to also be investing in resilience and investing in community resilience and uh, you know bad things still happen and uh, so it's you know it's not this either or kind of thing I think a lot of times you get this presented as like either or and, and in fact you know I think social justice is uh, a key ingredient to really you know one of the most important resources that any community or any individual or family embedded in a community can have in terms of overcoming thriving. And so I, I do sometimes hear those things presented in opposition to each other. And I think it's really important to understand that, uh, you know, that just the opposite that we ought to see them as like, you know, you know, peas in a pod and, and not opposing movements. Thanks. I think that's a really great point to, to end the podcast on. I definitely one I wholeheartedly agree with as well. So uh, that concludes the time we have for today's podcast. But thank you so much. This has been a, a really interesting and engaging conversation. And I've certainly learned a lot about community resilience and I hope our audience have as well. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jennifer. I have really enjoyed it too. And, and those were terrific questions. I appreciate them. Thank you. And thank you very much to our audience for listening. The Resilience Research Group is a global group of researchers, practitioners, charities and organisations dedicated to developing high-quality collaborative resilience research. Our aims are to improve access to, understanding of and quality of resilience research and to support and aid our members in effectively developing and disseminating their research. To find out more or to get involved, contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn.